you do. We are in part four of our sermon series, Rebuilding the Church. I know, uh, obviously, today we've got a lot of people gone, and we understand that. We've had a lot of people gone for a number of weeks, and so not everybody's getting to hear these messages, but let me, let me encourage you, if at all possible, uh, access them on a podcast and, and listen to them, because these are, I don't know about for you, but they're, for me, they're challenging messages, Challenging us to, to make ourselves available for God to do what we have thought to be impossible. How many of you believe that? God can do the impossible. Amen. So catch up on those. You can go to the website, uh, click on the sermons tab, and, and your podcast will be there. You can even do it on your smartphone. So uh, driving down the highway, listen, I, I promise you it won't put you to sleep as you're driving down the highway as it does here in these chairs. Uh, Go with me to Nehemiah chapter number two. (laughs) Nehemiah chapter number two. Oh, I understand, folks. It's hot outside. You come into a cool room like this in a soft chair. I know what I do. But when you have somebody as good looking as me and as nice to listen to as me. (laughs) There you go. Thank you, Doug. Nehemiah chapter number two. Um, Last week we saw how Nehemiah verbalized his goal. We talked about the fact that he did it at the proper time. Right when God opened the door to have this discussion with the king that he served. And today we're going to see... All of the things that Nehemiah asked the king for that would enable him to fulfill the goal that God had dropped into his heart to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now that he's gotten the permission, now that he's gotten the provision, now that he's gotten the passage to go, he mobilizes his mission. Mobilizing your mission. Chapter number 2, beginning with verse number 1. And I know we read a couple of these verses last week, but to give us context, we need to read them again and add to what we talked about last week. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city or the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And now we take up today. I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, 
that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that challenges us and your Holy Spirit that mobilizes us to carry out that which you have placed upon our hearts. Lord, we speak this not only as a, as a church body, that you would mobilize our church, but we speak it individually, God, that you would use each one of us in, in whatever capacity you see fit to mobilize the mission that you've given us in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Nehemiah had heard the sad news of Jerusalem, her walls laying in ruin. It broke his heart. And so he asked God to, ask, to, to use him to fix the situation. Now here's what I want to say to you to begin with. Over the years, many years, I have discovered that many of us pray for God to fix things. Amen? How many of you have ever prayed for God to fix something? Okay. But usually what I found that we really mean is this. God, I'd like to see changes. So I'm hoping that you'll find someone else to make the changes. Or better yet, God, just speak those changes that are needed into existence. That's a lot easier way to do it rather than mobilizing ourselves. But here in the book of Nehemiah, we find some principles of success in this story of one of the most successful building projects ever undertaken. How did this, how did this project, this rebuilding of the walls of the city of Jerusalem, how did it go from vision to fruition in 52 days. 52 days. It's, it, it's, it's amazing. And how can those same principles help us build a church? And I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about the body of Christ. How can, how can we use those same principles to, to build the kingdom of God? To build a good home? To build a good business? It... It translates into every area of our life, whatever needs building, whatever needs made better, we can use these same principles. Now, I don't believe that we as followers of Jesus should be afraid of the word success. That word success is commonly used in Scripture as the word prosper. As I was preparing this a couple of weeks ago, when I came to that statement that I just made about how God wants us to prosper. It took me back to probably one of the first memory verses that I ever committed to memory as a kid in children's church. And I'm going to do my best to recite it for you the way that I learned it, which was not the English Standard Version, but the King James Version. It is what we call Psalm 51. And it said, blessed is the man that walketh 
not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sit, standeth in the way of sinners. I already forgot it. Nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate all day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Prosper. Is that what I said? Did I say 51? I'm sorry. Psalm 1. I had me so shook up about having to recite it. Psalm 1. Um, you know, now that I've quoted it for you, can I give you my translation of it? The psalmist is telling us that if we shun the ways of the world and the sin that's so prevalent in this world, we will be like trees that are fruitful. And whatever it is that we do, will prosper in doing it. We'll be successful. It's the same thing, same principle that God told Joshua in Joshua 1, verse number 8. Joshua finds himself in the position of taking over for Moses to lead the people of God into the promised land. And God tells him, and again, this is my translation, Joshua, if you build your life on my word, then you will be prosperous and you will have good success. I think the official version was, Joshua, wherever your feet trod, I'm going to give it to you. Now that's prospering. That's being successful. You know, having grown up in a Pentecostal church back in the 60s and 70s, the moving of the Holy Spirit evidenced by the gift of speaking in tongues was termed by many non-Pentecostals as being Something that was eccentric or fanatical. And as a result of being accused of being eccentric or fanatical, many churches of all denominations stopped preaching on the scriptural teaching of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Um, they wanted to distance themselves from being labeled as fanatics. But going to that extreme of not preaching it or teaching it, the importance of being filled with the Spirit, I believe, has robbed many a church because they wanted, uh, they, they have this enormous blessing that God is being able, uh, wanting to bring to their lives. But in order to avoid being labeled as fanatical, they've moved away from it. Now, here's the reason why I'm telling you this. The same is true of the prosperity movement. You've heard it on TV from TV evangelists that tell you if you send them X amount of dollars that, that you'll have whatever you want. We've, we've heard it called name it and claim it. In other words, if you want, if you want a Cadillac, all you gotta do is look at God as being the blue light special at Kmart and ask Him for it and you'll have it. Now, we know that's not scriptural. But what do we do? We chuck the whole teaching about being prosperous because we don't want to be labeled as being fanatical 
as I just described. Prosperity gospel is not what we're all about, but God wants us to be successful. Not for our glory, but for His, and not by the standards of the world, but by God's standards. I believe in biblical prosperity. We want the world to see us succeed. Why? So that we can bring praise and honor to the Lord Jesus. And the way that we live our lives. Our our success is found in building Him a kingdom. Not building ourselves a compound. Nehemiah didn't want to build his personal kingdom. But he wanted to do something for God that would make him a success in God's eyes. Last week, we, I said we saw how Nehemiah uh, verbalized his goal. He did it at the proper time, in the proper spirit, and, and with the proper words. And, you know, here's the problem, friends. Many times we get ahead of God. We impatiently want our way, and we want it now, and, and we make a big mess of things. But the other side of that coin is this. Too often, we wait too long to launch out with what God has told us to do. There's some people who are, who are like the guy I heard about that waited at the end of his driveway for every stoplight in town to turn green before he went anywhere. I, can I just tell you, you're not going to get anywhere doing that. Maybe you've heard this. This is a silly poem. I don't even know why I put this in here, but I'll share it with you. Here comes the bride, white of hair, stooped over her cane. Her footsteps uncertain need guiding. Down the other church aisle, with wide toothless smile, the groom in his wheelchair comes riding. Who is this elderly couple thus wed? You'll find when you've closely explored it. This is that rare, unusual pair who waited till they could afford it. I couldn't pass that up. Nehemiah verbalized his goal with a prayerful spirit. And even as he talked to King Artaxerxes, he's silently talking to his king of kings. He's breathing a prayer to heaven. And he'd already bathed what God had placed in his heart. He'd already been praying about it, crying and weeping before God for four months. And now God drops the opportunity in his lap to tell the king what he has need of. Now, he had verbalized his goal with a powerful statement. We talked about it last week, and it boiled down to five words. I, that I may rebuild it. We need clearly spelled out goals. We need mission statements. We need to put those things on paper. So now Nehemiah has already made the impossible happen. You see, the king had already issued a decree that those walls would never be built. And now God drops this opportunity in his lap. He tells the king what he wants to do. And amazingly, the king goes against what he's decreed and said, what can I do to help? The impossible has already taken place. God has changed the heart of the king. So today we're going to see that after having gotten the king's blessing, Nehemiah mobilizes the means by which his goal can come to pass. 
I'm going to give you some very practical things this morning. I, I think sometimes we, we get educated beyond our intelligence. <laughs> and, and we just need to get back to practical things. The first thing that I want to say to you this morning is wishful thinking never achieves goals. You have to know in advance what it's going to take to reach a goal. And you have to ask God to give you the direction. Uh, you know, there's a teaching from Jesus in the New Testament book of Luke. I believe it's in, in chapter number 14, beginning with verse number 38. I'm not going to read the whole thing for you, but I'll tell you what the teaching was. Jesus was teaching those who were listening. He says, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? He, then he goes on to make the same point about a king who is planning to take his nation to war. And he says, what king will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? What is Jesus saying? You have to do some planning first. Every area of our lives, we have to count the cost. We have to mobilize the means. Perhaps you've heard it said, people don't plan to fail. They fail to plan. And it's true. Nehemiah has spent four months praying and planning. He's apparently thought through every detail. And now when he finally has the ear of the king, he knows exactly what he wants to ask for. Verses 5 and 6 that we read earlier tells us what Nehemiah asked for. And the first thing that he asked for was permission. Why did he ask for that? Because he's a servant of the government. And in that capacity, he couldn't just walk away. He couldn't just go AWOL. They would have searched him down until they killed him. So he had to ask for permission. Not only did he need permission to leave his responsibilities as cupbearer to the king, he needed permission to even build the walls. And with that in mind, let me propose to you this second practical question. Why do we need permission to do what we know to be God's will? Why do we need permission to do what we know to be God's will? Why did Nehemiah need permission to do what... God had placed in his heart. Well, I'll tell you why. The Bible teaches that you and I, as people of God, above every other people on the face of the earth, ought to be subject to authority as good citizens. As much as is possible, believers ought to work within the framework of our society. Now, we ought to have respect. We ought to obey the rules of human government. God promises blessing. You know what? Even Jesus paid Caesar taxes. Remember that story? They came to him and said, Jesus, do we pay Caesar or do we pay what belongs to God? And Jesus said, show me your coin. And on the coin, it had a picture of Caesar. And he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God. 
We need to act and respect and obey the rules of human government. Now, the exception to that, of course, is when man's law conflicts with God's law. We find the stories of that in in the book of Acts with Peter and, and John preaching. And they were told by the government, don't do it anymore. But God had told them, this is what I've called you to do. So you, you need to obey God rather than man in that situation. But for all you who might be conscientious objectors out there, even Jesus gave Caesar his place. I wasn't aware of this until just a short time ago. <laughs> but I did some research and I found that the, the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, has what they call a conscience fund. Did any of you know that? It's called a conscience fund. It's used for voluntary contributions from people who have stolen from or defrauded the government. You can send funds which you owe from many years back, which are no longer be able to be audited by the government, to rid yourself of a guilty conscience. One man sent a check to the conscience fund with a note that said, I truly hope this helps my guilty conscience a little. If it does, then I'll send the rest. Not only did Nehemiah need permission, he needed passage. Crossing the border into another country in that day was a tense moment, and it was actually the most difficult part of the journey for Nehemiah. Can you see how, how Nehemiah has, has carefully considered all the details of what he's getting ready to undertake for the kingdom of God? He wasn't caught flat-footed. He's ready. He's a man with a plan. And as for this particular aspect of mobilizing his mission, let me apply this to the church with a very practical comment. You know, today in America, we are in bondage to a very staggering national debt. We're being invaded by open borders. We have, to a large degree, lost respect around the world as a nation. We have a crumbling infrastructure. We have all types of national disasters. We have racial, racial tensions that still exist. And in much the same way as the nation of Israel of Nehemiah's day, our history parallels the history of Israel. God had a future plan for the Israel of Nehemiah's day. And God has a plan for his church today. What I'm saying to you is that if we as believers want the promise of God's protection and God's provision to give us passage in this world, the best thing you can do is be a part of the church. Not this church, the church. The blood-bought, redeemed church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because there are no boundaries of language. There are no boundaries of race. There are no boundaries of nationality for the church. Anyone can be a part of it. And that's not even the best part. The best part is God promises for his church, his promises for his church extend beyond death into eternity. Hallelujah. The greatest privilege in the world, friends, if you haven't figured it out yet, is the privilege of being a part of the body of Christ. The greatest thing that you could ever do. Now, the next thing that Nehemiah needed to mobilize his mission was provision. Now, I find it remarkable that according to verse number 8, Nehemiah has so completely researched this product, 
He already has the name of the guy who runs the king's forest. Now, why is that important? Because the king's forest will be his lumber yard. He already knows the guy that runs the lumber yard. Where he's going to get all of these materials. Again, as it applies to the church today, spiritually speaking, we need the provision of God if we are going to do anything significant for the kingdom. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He didn't call us to build our church. He called us to build His church. And in order to build His church, we need the provision of the Holy Spirit to make us effective witnesses of the good news of Jesus that will change and transform lives and build the church. We need His provision. We'll never accomplish it on our own. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need a a heavenly fuel to get us all the way through to completing the mission that God has given us. <laughs> we need some checks from the bank of heaven to pay our way all the way to where God wants us to be. Now, interestingly enough, chapter 2 tells us that Nehemiah got his supply, and it uses these words, out of the king's riches. He got his supply out of the king's riches. So the king... King Artaxerxes was going to provide him with the the funds necessary to do what he was called to do, right? But there's a very interesting thing in the scriptures. Philippians chapter 419, many of you have it memorized. It says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his, according to, not out of, but according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. What is the difference between giving out of his riches and giving according to his riches? Well, I'll explain it for you. If you were a street beggar and Jeff Bezos from Amazon or Bill Gates from Microsoft walked by you and handed you a $20 bill, they would be giving you out of their riches. But if each of them gave you a blank check and told you to fill in the amount of the check, however you wanted to, they would be giving according to their riches. Now, how does that apply spiritually? Can I just say that although Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates are two of the richest men in the world today, we serve a God, friends. Who makes those guys look like the beggar. (laughs) Our God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And not only does he own the cattle. He owns the hills and he owns the gold in them dar hills. What does that mean for us? It means that the sky is not the limit with God. His riches extend throughout the universe and there's nothing that you or I are facing that isn't very small to God. And he gives us according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. That ought to get an amen out of you. 
He wants us to prosper. If you look at the latter part of verse number eight, eight, Nehemiah says, the good hand of my God was upon me. We sing about that good hand. We sing God is so good. We sing it in a number of different songs. And the reason we sing it is because God's good hand is upon his people. He wants his people to prosper. And then you'll find that Nehemiah gives God the glory. Now, this is very important. When you taste success in the kingdom of God, when you begin to prosper and flourish in your life that you are living for Jesus, notice what Nehemiah did. Better yet, notice what he didn't do. (laughs) Nehemiah didn't write a book. Well, he gave us this book. But he didn't start going around the country on a speaking tour how to get what you want from your king. He gave God the glory. Whatever you have, whatever success, whatever prosperity you've attained, give God the glory. Let me just say this to you. God requires that we give him a 10% tithe. That was the Old Testament. That was the Old Testament uh, increment of giving. But let me drop this on you. Not just 10%, but everything that you have belongs to God. Everything. Everything. And that's a lot. God has given you that. If he's made you a success in the world, give God the glory. If he's made you a success in the kingdom of God, give him the glory. That's what Nehemiah said. He said, the good hand of God was upon me. And not only that, but Nehemiah knew that even this pagan king Artaxerxes, his heart was in the hand of God. His heart was going to do whatever God told him to do. Whether he believed in God, Jehovah God or not, God controlled him. Throughout history, we see that God is the one on the throne. And God is the one that is in full control. Now, why do I say that? Because it doesn't matter who's sitting in the Oval Office in the White House. It doesn't matter who presides over the United Nations. God used Pharaoh, if you'll remember, to demonstrate his power to the land of Egypt. He used King Cyrus to deliver his people from captivity. He used Rome's Caesar Augustus to send Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem so that one verse of prophecy could be fulfilled. God used two Roman centurions to save the Apostle Paul's life, for heaven's sakes. And God used the Roman executioners... To hang a man named Jesus to a cross. Not even knowing that what they were doing was fulfilling God's plan of redemption for the ages. (laughs) It don't matter who we think is in control down here. God's in control. He doesn't have a plan B. It's all his plan. And it's all coming to pass exactly as he's ordained it to come to pass. So when 
You hear that? Let me ask you this question. What has God put in your heart to do? Well, quit wishing for it and looking at why it can't happen and start praying that God will move heaven and earth if it's his will for you to do whatever you think he wants you to do. The, our theme song ought to be the future so bright I got to wear shades, Gary. God has a glorious future for every one of us. We just have to trust it to him and then mobilize ourselves to bring it to pass. You see, here's the deal. Another very practical statement. Make the best, or the most, however you want to term it. Make the most of God's plans for your life. Make the most of it. You see, as pastor of this church, I, I want to mobilize this church to, to maximize its ability to reach our community with the good news of Jesus. That's my goal. That's what I work for. Nehemiah verbalized his goal, and then he mobilized the means. And the last thing that I see that he did here in his conversation with the king was he galvanized against the enemy. Now, that's a strange word to use, and I'll explain why I used it. Verse 10. If you go on, well, let's, let's do, let's, let's go on from where we left off. It says, then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. And the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But look at verse 10. It says, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this. And it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Sanballat and Tobiah. They were displeased that Nehemiah was coming to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But King Artaxerxes, you see, had sent with Nehemiah officers of his army and horsemen that would come against anyone or anything that might stand in the way of Nehemiah's mission. I chose that word galvanize. Because it means to fire up or stir up. In this case, Nehemiah's heart had been fired up to do what God called him to do. Friends, once your heart is set on accomplishing what God has placed in your heart to do, there's no looking back, no fearing the enemies that the devil will put in your path. Now, I want you to hear me very closely on this. When you set about doing something for God, something significant for God, the world is not going to be your cheerleader. They're going to come against you at every task. In fact, it's likely that they will even actively oppose you if you want to accomplish God's purposes in your life. I saw a quote from a Baptist pastor, editor of the publication, The Sword of the Lord. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that. For whatever the reason, um, my mother-in-law years ago subscribed to a, made a subscription to The Sword of the Lord to come to me as pastor. And I have a lot of those little papers in, in my files. And, and I, I saw this quote from a Baptist pastor, the editor of that publication. 
He said he met a lady who said that she had never encountered or met up with the devil in pursuing the purposes of God in her life. You know what he told her? He said, maybe you're both heading in the same direction. If you never have opposition from the devil, friends, it may be because he's got you right where he wants you. When you say, let's rise up and build something for the kingdom, I'm guaranteeing you the devil is going to raise up someone to blast your efforts. Galvanize your soul against all enemies. Keep your eye on the goal and don't give up for anything or anybody. You see, what happens a lot of times, and again, being very practical, overanalysis causes us paralysis. We start thinking of all the reasons why it can't happen. We start thinking of all the things that may be a stumbling block. And we start considering all the things that may come up against us in the pursuit of doing what God wants us to do. And pretty soon, our over-analysis has caused us paralysis. And we sit, and the mission is never accomplished. Now, I've, one of the things in this series of messages that, for whatever reason, I, I, I've done, don't know whether it's effective or not, I hope it is, but I've closed each one of these messages with something that probably sounds a little bit silly to people who've been in church forever. But I'm going to do it again in this message this morning, and here it is. Two frogs fell into a deep cream bowl. One was an optimistic soul, but the other took the gloomy view. I shall drown, he cried, and so will you. So with the last despairing cry, he closed his eyes and said goodbye. But the other frog with a merry grin said, I can't get out, but I won't give in. I'll swim around till my strength is spent. For having tried, I'll then die content. Bravely he swam until it would seem his struggles began to churn the cream. On, top of the, on the top of the butter, at last he stopped, and out of the bowl he happily hopped. What is the moral? It's easily found. If you can't get out, keep swimming around. If you can't overcome your paralysis, forget the analysis. And just step out in faith. To what God has already placed in your heart. Would you bow with me, please? Nehemiah, Jacob, worship team, if you would come, please. Nehemiah had this cushy life as the cupbearer to the king. But then God comes along and he puts inside of Nehemiah this great vision for, for more than he'd ever experienced in his life. And he allowed that mission to galvanize his heart. So we're going to see in the remainder of these messages from this book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah never 
let go. He never gave in. And 52 days later, the walls were built. Now, two weeks ago, many of you stood at this altar saying you had something that you felt to be impossible that you needed God to do. Again, I don't know what those things were, nor do I need to know. But I can tell you this. Overanalysis will cause paralysis. And instead of wasting your time thinking of all the things that might come in opposition against you in the pursuit of whatever it is that God's dropped in your heart, you're going to be tempted to give up. You're going to be tempted to give in. You're going to talk yourself out of it. But friends, if God put it in your heart, all you need to do is trust Him. All you need to do is trust Him. For heaven's sakes, God turned the heart of a pagan king to make it possible for the walls of Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And 52 days later, after, after Nehemiah mobilized his mission, those walls, as crude as they were, they weren't beautiful walls, but they were walls. At least they fortified the city. And at least Nehemiah accomplished what God had put in his heart to do. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed this morning, think of what God has put in your heart. It may, it may be something that everybody else would think, oh, that's no big deal. But for you, it's a big deal. It may be helping with vacation Bible school. It may be getting involved with single parent care day. It may be an outreach we haven't even thought yet. But God has placed it in your heart and said, we need to do this. And I'm going to use you to make it possible. Trust God. Don't overanalyze and say, well, I don't know what Pastor Terry would think of that. Or I don't know what the board would think of that. If God has dropped something in your heart, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. Think of First Assembly of God in Phoenix, Arizona, the fastest growing church in America, pastored by one of my mentors, Pastor Tommy Barnett. Ten years ago, they had 331 different ministries emanating out of that church. Ministries that... If I were to tell you what they were, you'd think that's the stupidest thing I ever heard of taking place in a church. Do you know why it's the fastest growing church in America? Because for somebody, it wasn't so silly after all. Tommy Barnett said, people will come to me and they'll tell me, this is what I feel like God wants me to do in the church. And they'll say, I just wanted to run it by you, Pastor. And he said, you don't need to run it by me. You just need to tell me what I can do to help what God has placed in your heart come to pass. Dear Jesus, this morning we bow before you. We're asking you to melt us, to mold us, and to make us whatever you, the divine potter, 
desires to make of our lives. And God, we know that you'll provide the means if we just trust you. If we just trust you, you'll, you'll bring it to pass. And so, Holy Spirit, I'm asking that you speak to every heart in this room today. Drop something that is so big, so seemingly impossible, that when it comes to pass, everyone who witnesses it coming to pass will know that we didn't have the gifts, the talents, or the abilities to pull it off ourselves, so it had to be God. Speak to hearts just now in the name of Jesus. Birth in us, Lord, vision for how you want to use what is left of our life. Lord, you still have us here for a purpose and a plan that nobody else on the face of the earth can accomplish but us. And so, Jesus, give us the faith to believe that you can do the impossible. Would you stand with me to stand to your feet? And I want you, I know we've sung this song already this morning, but I want us to sing it again, and I want you to really, really soak in the words as Jacob leads us today. Beautiful thing.